Our scripture reading this morning comes from the 64th chapter of the prophet Isaiah, verses 1 through 12. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so the mountains would quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who works for those who wait on him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember in your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned, because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Our attempt there is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hands of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We, all, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O God, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now, consider, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. After all this, will you restrain yourself, O Lord? Will you keep silent and punish us so severely? Say, is God's good word for us, God's beloved people? Thanks be to God. Amen. So, I live on a very strange corner of the internet, and I have found out that our government, it's done a lot of things, I guess, but our government has done a lot of very interesting research, specifically with pigeons. Our government seems to have a thing for doing research with pigeons. So, it turns out that decades ago, back before we had all this, like, computer technology that can guide bombs and missiles to targets, someone inside the U.S. government had the genius idea of, what if we used pigeons to do that? So they realized, this is fairly genius in a weird way, is that you can train a pigeon to, rep to recognize the shape of a ship. And so then you can put a pigeon inside a ship-seeking missile and train it to pick the screen when at, wherever it sees a ship, and that would guide the missile into the ship. I don't think this ever made it to combat, but, like, you know, it was pretty remarkable. If you think, like, you train the pigeon, and, okay, but that's not actually the end of our government's relationship with training pigeons to do weird things. Recently, government research government-funded research realized that you can train a pigeon to tell the difference between one artist and another, right? So every artist has their own distinct style, and apparently a pigeon can be trained to, rep to recognize a painting by the artist Monet, and a painting, excuse me, and a painting by the artist Picasso, and, and if you show the pigeon a Monet 
and a Picasso that they've never seen before, they will also recognize the difference and know that that's a Monet and that's a Picasso. That said, a pigeon can now pass Art History 101. It's really remarkable. If a little strange that we keep doing this stuff with pigeons. But if it's obvious to pigeons, thus it is obvious to humans, artists, it's a long way of saying, artists have styles, right? Recognizable, distinct styles. And every work of art bears the mark of that style. It is so apparent you can teach a pigeon to recognize it. That, that painting with the bridge and the water lilies, that is by Claude Monet, the French Impressionist. And that, you know, painting with the weird streaks of color on it, uh, artfully arranged, I'm told, that is a Mark Rothko. And on the other side, the strange shapes and bright colors, that is definitely a Picasso. The pigeon would know what to do with two of the three of those paintings. Each of them are distinct and recognizable as that's a Monet, that's a Rothko, that's a Picasso. Every artist has a style, and every artist's style is left on their work, that it is recognizably theirs. It is recognizably a Monet, a Rothko, a Picasso. We are that way too, but we were not made by Claude Monet. We were not made by Mark Rothko. We were not made by Pablo Picasso. We were made by God. God is the artist that crafted us. God is our potter. And we are God's clay. And we are crafted in the image of God. Which means we share some things with our divine creator. And it means that we are forever connected to the God who made us and the God who chose to stay involved with us, the God who loves us. It's laid out there in black and white, right there in the story of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 25 through 26, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our, our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in the image of God. Excuse me, in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This doesn't mean you could, like, hold up a mirror and know visually what God looks like. That is perhaps not what it means to be made in the image of God. It means something more like we are able to do things like God can do them, just less so. God spoke the whole universe into existence with a word. We are able to create and make things. We make buildings and we make cities and we make drain pipes and we make pigeon research and we make all kinds and, and not all of it's good and some of it's weird and I don't really know why we thought let us use this creative power God put in us to figure out how a pigeon can fly a missile but we did that and we did that because we were created in the image of God and thus are able to make things that don't ordinarily that wouldn't exist otherwise that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We are also able to serve and love others. Maybe not always perfectly, but with God moving in our lives, we can get a heck of a lot better at it. That is part of being created in the image of God. And it means that we bear that mark and thus are forever connected to God. 
that nothing can sever that connection because it is it is the maker's mark. It is the artist's signature. It is the style in which we were made. Whether Monet signed his work or not, it is obviously a Monet. We like our, have that connection to God. God made us. We bear the mark of our creator. And so when you initially read, and often folks love this, we pull single verses out of context because it sounds lovely, right? We do this with Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans God has for me. He says, Lord, we do it for John 3, 16, for God so loved the whole world, he gave his only son, right? We also do it with Isaiah 64, 8. We pull out just a little snippet. Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And when you hear it just on its own, it fills you with a warm, fuzzy feeling, doesn't it? You imagine, you know, craftspeople on wheels, you know, the imagery we've been using, you know, and, you know, like the warmth of a kiln, heated pottery studio and the beautiful pot emerging, right? It's one of those verses that gives you the warm fuzzies. But there's a problem with that. It, it's true, God is the potter and we are the clay. But it's in the middle of this like moment where the people are not like feeling good about how things are going. It comes from a moment when people are feeling really bad about how things are going. And they're saying, God, you are the potter and we are the clay to like remind God not to abandon them. This is the bit in the romantic comedy where the dude is standing outside the window with the boombox playing the song so that hopefully they will be noticed. That's what's happening um, if you actually read all of verses 8 through 12. They are crying out from the depths of their souls because they're worried that God might walk out on them. Yet, Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do, do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now, consider, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our ancestors praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. After all this, will you restrain yourself, O Lord? Will you keep silent and punish us so severely? That's not like a warm fuzzies verse. When you read it, as one passage, right? This is like, God, we're looking around. I'm not, I'm not seeing you. I know, I know you're supposed to be here, but like, I look out at the state of things and I, I'm not, not feeling great about it. See, this comes towards the end of the book of Isaiah and it's towards the end of Isaiah. So, uh, beginning of Isaiah, the people might go into exile. The middle of Isaiah, the people have gone into exile. The end of Isaiah, the people are back from exile. And I bet they thought as they were coming back from exile, we got it made in the shade. We finally get to come back. It's going to be great. Finally, all the problems we had are going to be set, right? We got it made. This is great. And then they get back and Jerusalem has no city wall. The temple is still been completely destroyed and the people still aren't doing what they should do. And so that's was Isaiah serving as prophet, which means normally talks to God, but now writing on the behalf of the people to God, cry out and say, where are you? H help? 
Now, there's some recognition, thankfully, some recognition from the people in this letter to God about how we ended up in this situation. That maybe, maybe some of why things are destroyed and the iniquity and all the suffering and the stuff uh, is maybe somewhat their own fault. That's verses 5 through 7. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, our attempts to take hold or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. This is, we couldn't see you as clearly as we would have liked, oh God, and so we got really badly off track. We became like a leaf or like our filthy rag. Like we really kind of messed up and now we really don't see you and you kind of, let us suffer the consequences of our own actions, right? That is, handed you over to the hands of our iniquities. Yeah, no, we did that, and now we're just kind of getting to sit in our own mess and look around and go, huh, well, this is bad, and God, help? Help. The way this chapter works is there are two kinds of confession held within it. There's the kind of confession we just read where they say, I'm guilty, right? This is crime dramas have taught us. I confess, right? You know, the, the, the big cop's going to go, I'm going to go get a confession out of them. They've gotten a confession out of them. The people have confessed. We messed up. But the other part of this chapter is the people confessing that God is rightfully in charge. That's that other kind of confession. The kind where they confess their faith where they say, God, rightly belong. God, you are in charge. God, you have done many great things. You are rightly in charge of the universe. God, we messed up. God, help. God, don't abandon us. God, don't leave us. God, you are our potter. We are your clay. You, are you going to abandon the work of your hands? Good news. God does not abandon the work of God's hands. Not in that time or in our own time. The temple gets rebuilt. The walls around Jerusalem get rebuilt. Read the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is how God answers this prayer. The walls go back up. The temple goes back up. The people gather in grand ceremony to recommit themselves to following God's law. And for the next 600 years, that temple stands. Yes, eventually gets knocked over by the Romans. That was 600 years later. It comes back together because they were God's chosen people and God had made a promise to not abandon God's creation. And for us as Christians, in Christ is God saying, just as I did not abandon them then, I will not abandon you now. Just as I loved them, answered their cry with, yes, here I am. Let's work together. When you feel that place where you cry out to God because of what Christ did on that cross, God's answer is, here I am. 
I'm here for you. I love you. You forever bear the mark of your creator. We bear the mark of the artist who made us. We are created in the image of God. And that means we can create mighty and beautiful things and also pigeon research. Take your pick. And it means we can love and serve others in ways that are miraculous. It means we can send 19 people to go sweat in the heat uh, for, in West Columbia, Texas for a week and make them pay their own way or work their own way. And they gladly do it, right? That's part of being created in the image of God is what those kids are going to do right now. Actually, I think they're going to Whataburger right now because uh, armies march on their stomachs. And then we're going to West Columbia, but you get the point. But also that means that God left an indelible mark on your life, saying that God is never going to let you go. You were created by God. You bear God's image. You are forever connected to God. And that means there's always a second chance. There's always an opportunity for a second chance, a next chance in God. You can always, when you find yourself in the place uh, where the Jewish people were, where they're like, yep, we messed up. And yep, things are bad. You can cry out to God and say exactly that. God, things are bad. I did that. Help. And God will help. And God's grace will be right there for you. God's love will be right there for you. God's forgiveness will be right there for you. God will say, yeah, you did mess up. That's okay. Let's keep going. Yes, you did mess up. But here is my grace. Here is my love. Here is my redemption. Here is my hope. And so for all of us, it is a challenge to confess and confess. Both kinds. The confession that yes, and this is awkward and uncomfortable and no one likes doing it. Going, hi, yeah, messed up. Uh -huh, that went bad and it's my fault. Now, you don't have to do it to a person. Sometimes it helps to do it to a person. By the way, unless you're trying to escape from prison um, or uh, it's about child abuse, uh, no one can compel, compel me to testify. You can tell me anything. And it is very unlikely that you're going to attempt escape from prison. You're here this morning, which means you already escaped from prison. And that means you can tell me because it's, it's already happened and you're fine. So if you feel the need to tell someone, you can tell me. That's part of what I'm here for. But you don't have to. By the way, that is actually a constitutional protected right. I can't be compelled to testify. It's really fun. One of my favorite things about being a pastor, weirdly. If someone can say, you should tell us that, and I say, no. You do need to confess somehow. Whether it's just you alone in your, in your prayer closet saying, God, I messed up, or if talking to someone else helps, you need part of being saved, part of being helped, part of being changed is admitting you need that. That's why you can't leave all talk of sin out of church. I know it's not fun. No one wants to, you know, clean behind their ears, shine their shoes up the church and be told how bad a person they are, but it's okay. We're all in this together. But like, we need to talk about it sometimes because you need to know what you're being saved from, right? Being saved from the stuff we did wrong. You don't have to tell other people, but you need to tell God that. Hi, God. I messed up. I need your help. And then there's that other part of confession. That bit that's where you tell God 
you are the Lord of my life. You are in charge now. I hand my life over to you. I'm going to put you in my life in the position where you belong as the Lord and maker of all and as the Lord and maker of me. The journey of faith begins or is renewed by confession and confession. Confession that you need God in your life and confession that God is the Lord of your life. By the power of God's love, by the fact that we bear God's image, by the fact that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. When we confess, when we confess, when we cry out, God is always right there for you. Let us pray. Gracious living God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the depth of your love. We give you thanks that you created us in your image. We give you thanks that you never let go of us. And so loving God, help us find the humility and the strength in our hearts to confess and to confess. To confess those places where we are not yet right. And to confess that in you is the power to be who you need us to be when we make you Lord of our lives. In Jesus' most holy name we pray.